Um, our final paper is by Dickon Edwards, um, who is also completing his PhD at Birkbeck on Ronald Furbank and the legacy of camp modernism. Um, he was a contributor to the decadent handbook and was going to be its cover boy until Aubrey Beardsley supplanted you. <laughs> so um, his paper today is Camp Continuities, Ronald Furbank's Motorising of Beardsley. Thank you. Um, right, well, what do we talk about when we talk about camp? The full effects and motivations behind camp are so complex and subjective that the term can engender a sense of slipperiness or something forever escaping one's grasp. In this paper, I want to argue that this idea of camp as something that constantly phases in and out of the mainstream world is part of the whole appeal of camp. Camp offers a strategy of escape for those who feel disenfranchised or marginalised by wider society. And to show this, I will be looking at the influence of Aubrey Beardsley on the Edwardian novelist Ronald Furbank. Specifically, I want to show how Furbank modernised the camp styles of his hero Beardsley, uh, streamlining and upgrading them for the modernist era, as if, as was said of Furbank in 1922, he was being Aubrey Beardsley in a Rolls Royce. <laughs> so one extended attempt to define camp is Mark Booth's 1983 book simply titled Camp. To illustrate the title page, Booth chose a caricature by Max Beerbohm of Aubrey Beardsley, I've already seen, but it's been a, a redrawn version. Um, not a Beardsley artwork, but Beardsley the body. Exaggerated, skinny, weak, overdressed, limp-wristed, clean-shaven, Beardsley but Beardsless, unmanly, and with a, a haircut which, which uh, is best, well, a child's haircut perhaps, even something phallic about it, but also the idea of the softy, as we now call them, uh, the, the, the archetypal soft man, the limp man, uh, and walking a toy poodle on wheels as if everything else wasn't enough. Booth thus implies that Beardsley was camp in his work because camp in his body. The slipperiness and the sense of constant motion that I've just mentioned comes from his being a man but also being a not-man, a parody of a man, a lack of heteronormative masculinity, walking a breed of dog which even in the 1890s signifies, perhaps unfairly, a certain vanity, showiness and frivolity. On top of which, this particular poodle isn't even real. It is a parody of itself, a toy on wheels. So in this sense, camp is exaggeration arising from the base of a lack. Why do this? Well, one answer might be that it creates a kind of spontaneous, abstract, safe space, which exists in the gap between the lack of the norm and the exaggerated version of the norm. And this space, is where the suppressed queer or non-normative subject can therefore feel empowered and protected. Camp enables them to exist on their own terms while still engaging with the mainstream world. So in a normative world, camp is sanctuary. To bring this discussion right up to date, it's useful to quote Sadie Smith in her February 2018 collection of essays, Feel Free. When Smith discusses Niagara, which is a video work by Mark Bradford, she defines camp in this way. 
Uh, doing more than is necessary with less than you need. Repeat that. Camp is doing more than is necessary with less than you need. Exaggeration, but from a lack. Now, Susan Sontag's 1964 essay, Notes on Camp, has dominated the, the discussion so heavily that many critics now reference Sontag as if she were the first writer to label things as camp. Uh, this is not true, as we will see. <laughs> Nevertheless, at least two items in her canon of camp convincingly hold up today. One of them is Aubrey Beardsley's drawings, and the other is Ronald Furbeck's novels. The problem is that Sontag breaks the link between that Beerman and Booth make, uh, Beardsley. She separates the camp artwork from the camp body of the artist, thus allowing for the common confusion of camp with kitsch. Like Beardsley, Ronald Furbeck's body was also distinctly camp, uh, notoriously sent during his own lifetime. Angela Carter's radio play about Furbeck, called a self-made man, dwells on his nervous, effeminate, exaggerated giggle. And Robert McCormick's memoirs of the 1920s, meanwhile, state that Furbeck belonged to the Beardsley tradition, not only, not only in his writing style, but also in his physical appearance. McCormick says that Furbeck's hands were long, beautifully manicured, and cared for. They were a dream of Aubrey Beardsley. Similarly, Harold Nicholson, in 1930, described Furbank's exaggerated and effeminate walk as more than sinuous, it did more than undulate, it rippled. <laughs> After the publication of Sontag's essay, the 1960s, as Dr. Hex has told us, uh, saw revivals of interest in both Beardsley and Furbank. Uh, Bridget Brophy, over the course of her two short books on, on Beardsley and one huge one on Furbank, explored the links not only between the camp body and the camp work, but also between Beardsley and Furbeck. She calls Furbeck the fixer of modern camp, thus not only evoking the idea of camp as a slippery thing, but also of camp owing its use as an artistic term to the 1920s, to the modernist, modernist era, not, as many critics seem to apply, to, to the 1960s and the era of Sonto. In April 1922, the American modernist magazine, The Double Dealer, uh, published an effusive article by Carl Van Vechten in praise of Furbank. His novels suggest, Van Vechten wrote, a Uranian version of Alice in Wonderland, Araboor, Alamod, John Cocteau at the Savoy, and Aubrey Beardsley in a Rolls Royce. Now, this last comparison played to the magazine's own readership because Beardsley's illustrations, as you can clearly see, were influenced. Um, and they influenced Double Dealer's covers. The editor of the magazine, uh, Julius Weiss' friend, later admitted that he and his colleagues held at that time an inordinate love of the English authors of the 1890s. And he acknowledged how their covers depicted nymphs and satires aplenty done in the Beardsley manner, suggesting I know not what amount of naughtiness. Therefore, Beardsley's appeal in, the, in this 1920s sense is camp as a subversive and rebellious youthful style, perhaps it also uh, mapping onto the way that he appealed in the 1960s to the young people of, the, uh, of swinging London. But what, what was much more significant in the Van Vechten Review was this line, and such dialogue in the argo of perversity, one would call it camping. Now this appears to be the earliest known use of the word camp, in a piece of cultural or artistic criticism, as we know. Unlike with Sontag, however, the mainstream world, with homosexuality uh, very much 
criminalised, was not quite ready for a piece of essentially gay slang to drift out into common artistic discussions, which is perhaps why the words cab did not properly surface into the mainstream until the era of sexual liberation. Nevertheless, this, this article demonstrates that the act of calling Furbank and Vincy cat together was in print in 1922. Now, certainly, there have been no shortage of comparisons between Furbank and Under the Hill, which is Vincy's unfinished prose work, which Gary McMahon's book, Camp and Itcher, calls the most camp writing in the canon. In 1929, Evelyn Waugh said Furbank owed something to Under the Hill, albeit superficially, while Ian Forster, in the same year, wrote that Furbank's mind inherits the furniture and his prose the cadences of Beardsley's Under the Hill. While Cyril Connolly uh, also noted Furbank's debt to Under the Hill, though he added that Furbank was more radiantly preposterous, a humorist of wider calibre. And in Jocelyn Brooks' 1949 novel, A Mine of Serpents, the character of Hugh Dallas says, you haven't read Furbank? Oh my dear, you must. Beardsley in prose, but much better. Perhaps the best job is to go back to Bridget Brophy. Uh, in her 1968 book on Beardsley, she identifies one long sentence in Under the Hill as very pretty, camp, and for Bankian. This, by the way, hints at just how aware of the terms camp and the for Bankian she expects her readership in 1968 to be. She doesn't explain what camp and for Bankian mean. The sentence from Underhill describes the story of St. Rose as follows. He thought of St. Rose, the well-known Peruvian virgin, how she was beloved by Mary, who from the pale fresco in the church of St. Dominic would stretch out her arms to embrace her, how she promised to marry Ferdinand de Flores, and on the bridal morning perfumed herself and painted her lips and put on her wedding frock and decked her hair with roses and went up to a little hill not far without the walls of Lima. How she knelt there for some moments calling tenderly upon Our Lady's name, and how Saint Mary descended and kissed Rose upon the forehead and carried her swiftly into heaven. Uh, that's actually a cut it down as well. <coughs> In terms of Furbankian criteria, we can identify the ornate language, the high Catholic imagery, the tone of preciousness uh, combined with the tone of ennui, and the same-sex innuendo. Lesbian characters are very common in Furbank. Brophy, in fact, calls the accompanying illustration by Beardsley, in which the two women float in an, in a, in an embrace, as the bliss of, of gratified lesbianism. In fact, she goes on to uh, do a bit of what we now call slash fiction in saying that, uh, <laughs> I can find no evidence that the, the two women ever met, but if there's any justice, uh, Heather Furbank and Mabel Beardsley were lovers. Um, <laughs> now, I think if I wrote my PhD, I can find no evidence for this. I think I'm getting too involved. But uh, she goes into a kind of slash fiction mood in, in that, which is uh, very interesting. Um, but um, yes, so Furbank's own style, at least in his mature books, is subtly different. Uh, Edmund, Edmund Wilson in 1923 wrote that while the 1890s writers were worried and feverish, Furbank's work is more amicable. Uh, in the 80s, the critic Ian Fletcher notes that there is a violent difference of pace between a Furbank narrative and Beardsley's slow and linear progression in Under the Hill. So sticking with the Rolls-Royce analogy, we might think of Furbank driving the Beardsley style, style in a luxurious ride of a, kind of, of a protective, protective camp space, 
away from the fantasiclous anxieties of dread, sin, darkness, tragedy, and terror, and towards the modernist themes of cinematic quickness, uh, fragmentary playfulness, light, hope, and more carefree pleasures. Nevertheless, Furback idolised Bixley. In 1915, when pitching his first major novel, Vain Glory, Furback approached the publisher Grant Richards, who had known Bixley in the 1890s, or claimed to. Um, in, his, in his memoir, Grant Richards says that Furback described his novel as an attempt in prose to do something like Bixley had done in the illustrations to The Rape of the Lock. Richards said, surely I would bring his child into the world. Uh, his child, meaning Bixley, Bixley's uh, child. Thus, Furback pitched his novel, according to his publisher, as a kind of continuation of the Beardsley project. One should note, though, that Furback was keen to avoid using Beardsley's art on his own novels, preferring instead the likes of Wyndham Lewis, Augustus John, and Felician Ross. Now, Gary McMahon argues that the clean line drawings of Beardsley, as seen in the uh, Salome illustrations, especially the original ones, influenced a further aspect of Furback's style. In Furbank's novel, The Flower Beneath the Foot, 1923, there is the following passage. Swans and sunlight, a little fishing boat with coral sails, a lake all grey and green, the attitude intense, consummate calm. Now, McMahon argues that this passage is like Beardsley's brushstrokes, minimal and simplistic, streamlined even, yet managing to be lush and dreamy at the same time. But what especially makes Furbank a modernist writer is his use of stream of consciousness. In Concerning the, ex the Eccentricities of Cardinal Pirelli, 1926, Madame Poco's shifting thoughts are like a camp equivalent of the Molly Blue monologue at the end of Ulysses, albeit, as critic James Merrick puts it, more, <coughs> more effeminently refined. Alone and unaided, it was astonishing the evidence Madame Poco had gained, and she smiled as she sewed at the recollection of her latest capture, the handkerchief of Luna Saints. These headed hypers had come to confess, she scoffed sceptically. For Madame Poco had some experience of men, those brown humbugs, so delicious and tenderness, in her time. Poor soul, he had the prettiest teeth, she murmured, visualising forlornly her, her husband's face. And the whole chapter carries on in the same note. Now, in 2018, a new Picador Classic edition was announced of The Flower Beneath the Foot, due to be published in July. It's interesting to note Picador's choice of cover art, which is rather different to the 1923 first edition ghostly nun drawing <laughs> by the, the war artist, C.R.W. Leveson. Different, perhaps, but more appropriate, I think, because a new cover uses a 1919 illustration by the Art Deco French artist Georges Barbier. Barbier specialised in, in Art Deco fashion illustrations for Paris magazines, though he sometimes eroticised his figures in the surreal and perverse Beardsley manner. In fact, like Furbank, Barbier too was a great admirer of Beardsley, and he even owned some of Beardsley's letters and original art. In this way, the new Picador cover nods to the Beardsley spirit fused with the energy of the modernist era. So ultimately, Furbank made it new, as his repellent said, by upgrading Bisley's poodle on wheels into a Rolls-Royce of pure cap modernism.